Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Today we return to a theme of some previous podcasts, namely the causes and consequences of consumer spending and debt. Our guest is well suited to the task today. He's Dr. Ronald Wilcox, a professor of business administration at the Darden Graduate School of Business at the University of Virginia. He's the author of Whatever Happened to Thrift, Why Americans Don't Save and What to Do About It, published this spring by Yale University Press. Dr. Wilcox has taught at Darden since 2001 after serving as an economist at the Security and Exchange Commission and a teaching stint at Carnegie Mellon. He earned his PhD from Washington University in St. Louis in 1996. Welcome to ABI Podcast, Dr. Wilcox. Well, thanks for having me, Sam. Great. Well, it's no secret at this point that Americans save very little, uh, um, a near negative savings rate, uh, less than any other country uh, in the in the world, uh, with major social and policy implications. Your book explains some of these current and looming dangers of the savings crisis. What, in your opinion, are the most significant, both for individuals in terms of kitchen table economics and for government in terms of the macroeconomic effects? Right. Well, you certainly you, you stated it right. They're they're both uh, both personal issues here at play, um, and and as well as kind of macroeconomic risks. I'd say at at the personal level, there are two uh, two big risks. One is I think we're going to have a lot of people uh, that enter what we traditionally think of of as the retirement portion of their lives uh, without the means to do that. Um, we certainly have a group of people um, probably in their 20s all the way through their 40s in particular who are not saving enough of their incomes to to really fund a retirement. And what's happened with that group is um, they're probably unaware, a lot of them, at just how much money that they're going to need to save in a new system that really relies on individual savings rather than company, um, you know, old-style pension plans to, to fund savings. So I think that's going to be true for a lot of individuals. But I would say even if you're saving uh, enough, you still would, would worry about this at an individual level because if a lot of people are short money, when they retire, there certainly will be political pressure to transfer wealth from people who have saved responsibly to those uh, who haven't, um, and those will probably be in the form of higher taxes or maybe stripping away some of the tax-advantaged um, structures of some of the savings plans that see people uh, save through their employment. At the macroeconomic level, it, it, not having domestic savings really restricts some of the policy ability of both the central bank and the legislature, and I'll, I'll give you one example. If a, a lot of the debt that's floated by the U.S. government um, is purchased by people from outside of the U.S., you know, and that's fine in normal economic times. It's, it's perfectly fine if the Chinese or the Japanese hold a lot of our debt. But suppose um, times aren't so good, and, and those individuals decide in those countries, those governments, they're going to take 
their dollar-denominated assets, and they're going to go home, right? They're going to take their marbles and go home to their country and invest there instead. What we see is a large outflow of capital from the United States, and the only realistic thing the central bank could do, the Fed could do in that situation, is raise interest rates very high to try to keep some of that money within the United States. And, of course, if you're experiencing an economic downturn, dramatic increases in and things like uh, uh, you know interest rates will only exacerbate the problem. So the the fact that we don't have the domestic savings to cover the debt that the, that the government floats uh, could could be a serious problem for us all. We're going to uh, uh, circle back on uh, on some of those larger um, yeah. uh, governmental implications, but I want to I want to also go back to the individuals. It's, and you acknowledge this, I think, in, in your book, um, in that some. Uh, Americans are actually quite good at saving and preparing for their financial futures. It kind of creates a a financial polarization um, among uh, groups of people. Um, uh, Not not to say that there are, in fact, two Americas, but but to indulge that for a second, we have a kind of investor class, people who live in a world of uh, tax-deferred savings, 401ks, uh, financial advisors, uh, these are people who have options. And then we have another class. We'll call them the lottery class. They live in a world of uh, payday lenders, credit cards, uh, state-run lotteries, uh, right. where the government itself essentially tells people they don't have to work to build the future. You just have yeah. to strike it rich and get lucky. Yeah. Um, that's these, uh, the, these people live in a world of temptation, not options. Yeah. How, is that characterization unfair? No, it's it's not unfair. I think there's a number of things at play there. I, I share your um, generally negative attitudes towards state-run lotteries. I think both state-run lotteries and uh, governments spending more than they take in themselves either explicitly or tacitly tells people that, you know, debt is okay. Uh, long-term debt is okay. It's all right to kind of engage in these activities. And I, so I, I don't think government by sponsoring those lotteries or running constant deficits is really sending the right uh, the right message to people about how to handle money. I think in terms of the two classes of people, money is an, a, a specific example of probably a more primary characteristic that differentiates people. Some people are just uh, planners by nature. Um, there, there's research, uh, and, I, and I cite this in the book, where the people that for example, plan their vacations very meticulously or, you know, plan a house or right. plan other parts of their lives are more going to be the ones that, that take advantage of these tax-deferred uh, retirement plans and do well for themselves. I think the big difference is there's probably always been that difference among human beings. You know, that probably goes back a long way. But now, because a lot of the risk associated with uh, financial security and retirement has been shifted from really companies, the big companies that people used to work for, into people's own lap. Mm-hmm. That um, some people, you know, it, 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 that's given rise to this bifurcation. Some people handle that very well and do better for themselves than they would under the old-style uh, company-sponsored pension plans, and some people do it very poorly. So this part of human nature that has probably also always been there, or been there for a long time, mm-hmm. is now revealing itself um, in ways that are probably going to be very predictive of how well people off are off uh, 
uh, later in their lives. Now, you mentioned young people in particular um, and the lack of knowledge or understanding um, about how they really are going to be in control of their financial futures. And um, you know, I've got I've got teenage children, uh, sure. one college age. We, they all know the dangers, for example, of smoking through years yeah. of anti-smoking campaigns. Uh, we now know the real and imagined dangers of global warming uh, yeah. through you know Hollywood and Al Gore. How come we don't have a similar set of knowledge about the thrift and debt? crisis, even though it affects far more Americans than either of the other issues, and it's every bit as consequential for the failure to act. Well, I think, you know, you're making an important point. Um, I think partly one of the fundamental things that people have to uh, people have to understand in order to get the knowledge base that they need are a couple of uh, concepts that are very tough. Uh, compound interest, probably uh, and, and compound debt uh, being one of them. It's very hard to teach people that. Uh, uh, it, it is uh, just mathematically tough, okay? So when you say that people understand the dangers of smoking, they don't understand all the science behind right. that. People basically understand if you smoke, you have a lot uh, higher probability of, of dying, and that's a simple concept to get. But if you ask people, you know, if you save $300 a month, is that enough, for example, to... to you know, to, to fund a retirement, that involves some math that is tough for people. So what we need to do, and I think where we have fallen down, and I include myself in this, is to develop, you might call them heuristics, or simple ways for people to grasp what are otherwise kind of mathematically difficult problems. Um, the other thing that I think we have done, and I, I've blogged about this, is that, you know, the millennial generations, which are the 20-somethings now, Retirement is not a word that's attractive to them. Um, that, that's a uh, right. that, that's a word that connotes kind of um, you know the shuffleboard, right. the shuffleboard, and be you know that's not what they seek. They seek things like financial independence. Mm-hmm. That that's attractive to a twenty-something. So, to the extent that we take the tools or the mathematics that we've used to describe retirement, like online retirement calculators and those sorts of things, and recast them in terms of hey, here's a session that will help you become financially independent, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, that's a simple thing. It's a marketing idea. But I think it, it speaks much more powerfully to the younger generation. It just has a different set of goals and a different agenda. Right. In identifying uh, the reasons uh, why we save so little, you seem to... Uh, uh, dismiss the narrative of the innocent consumer being uh, victims of predatory lenders. There's one quote in the book that leaped out at me, um, and I hope I have this right. It's, it's, quote, blaming the American savings problem on credit cards is like blaming America's obesity problem on McDonald's. You got it right. Uh, you called it a convenient lie, I think. And, of course, uh, I guess uh, some people would say lots of people do blame McDonald's. Witness yeah. the recent moratorium on fast food restaurants in South Central L.A. that sailed through the L.A. City Council last week, an area right. that yeah. covers 32 square miles. Now, whether or not that legally is going to stand is another question, but 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 people do, uh, you know, create this kind of blame game. And then there are, there are many people uh, on the... 
certainly among consumer groups and in the academic left, if that's not being redundant, that in fact blame uh, credit cards for high debts and low savings of, of households, leading to in fact higher bankruptcies, credit card debt uh, quadrupling um, uh, to some $937 billion, with the growth in the debt fastest among those with the least uh, growth in their income. So, so how do you uh, reconcile that or defend uh, that, that position that you s- stake out in the book? Well, I certainly don't dismiss uh, the, the fact that credit cards have had an impact at all. I mean, my view would be that one of the reasons that Americans uh, do get into serious debt problems of the type that create bankruptcy um, is certainly enabled by credit cards. Wouldn't, wouldn't argue against that for a minute. But I think I, I, I would differentiate between the fundamental problem of a lack of savings in the U.S., and some of the really risky debt behavior that gets people towards bankruptcy. There are plenty of people that handle their credit cards perfectly well that don't save money. So I think there are, uh, uh, those, are those are two somewhat distinct issues. And I think the, the credit card angle is overplayed. You know, it, it used to be that the credit cards were available in the U.S., um, and they were much more available in the U.S. than they were available in places like Japan or Western Europe. But... Um, it's still more available in the U.S. than it is there, but um, they have greatly expanded uh, credit card availability, uh, particularly in the Japanese marketplace. And uh, and we still see high savings rates. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, um, I just don't buy it. Um, we see too many people that are very consistent and pay off their credit card bills and don't get themselves into debt, and yet when it comes to saving for retirement, do a very poor job. So I just. Uh, I think it's part of the explanation of, of tough to get out of debt. I think there are some predatory lenders out there that deserve all the regulation that's probably going to get thrown at them pretty soon. Um, at the same time, I don't think it explains the savings problem. Let, let's um, turn for a second to the the nature of the savings problem and, and uh, sort of the why uh, that might explain uh, uh, where we're at here. There was a, a, a couple of uh, recent uh, columns by uh, New York Times op-ed columnist David Brooks. He seemed to be channeling some of your theories um, a, a little bit, particularly the idea that consumer spending behavior is influenced by reference groups, behavior yeah. by uh, friends, coworkers, acquaintances uh, that we silently absorb which affect our decisional process about sure. uh, what we buy, when we buy it, uh, do we want to save for it first, or we, do we want to acquire it on, on credit. And his further point is that over a generation or, or more, perhaps, the code of the thrift culture has eroded. Mm-hmm. Is that too simple or a distortion of your no, theory? No, I think you're, you did that argument you're making is, 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 is fair. Um, I mean, I think David Brooks is, you know, I don't know if he's channeling my book, but he, he is a, uh, familiar with some of the work like uh, the Institute for American Values right. conferences I go to, and he, he's actually cited a report that came out from them. So he, he's kind of aware of a group of people that are working on, on the topic. Uh, yes, I think uh, David Brooks thinks that the, 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 uh, uh, the culture of thrift and he would couch in a little more moral terms than I do in the book, but that that, that is really broken down. 
Um, I like David Brooks' writing a lot. I think he goes a little too far um, on the moral dimension of it. I think the, the reason, for example, people of the Depression-era generation uh, save more money is not because they are morally superior to 20-somethings. Um, I think they saw bad times, and whenever you go into mm-hmm. a country uh, where people have seen really bad times, whether that's large economic downturns or war, for example, you tend to see much larger savings rates because there's an endemic pessimism uh, among people. And when people are more pessimistic, perhaps realistically pessimistic, right. pessimistic, they tend to save more money. And I think the 20-somethings have seen, you know, uh, not the, uh, certainly they've seen small downturns, and, uh, but they haven't seen World War II. They haven't right. seen the Great Depression. Right. Um, a lot of them have you know, no memory of Vietnam. They, they, it's, um, uh, they just have a lot fewer reasons to be uh, pessimistic or think that bad things might happen in their right. lives because it's just not an experience they've had. So, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in, in individuals making their own decision, and I, I agree with David Brooks that <clears throat> that the article it was Morganson, I think, went a little too far yeah. in blaming uh, right. you know, institutions rather than individuals at the same time people's individual experiences, I think, are driving some of these generational differences we see in savings rates. And things taught by your parents. I'm the product of generation uh, uh, that grew up in the Depression. And, I mean, these are folks who did not use credit, paid cash for their house. Having a a home mortgage was viewed as a bad thing. That's right. Uh, And that that is the, the generation of Christmas clubs and layaway and... Concepts yeah. which are utterly foreign certainly do. Um, you know. Yeah, they are, and, and they really weren't widespread at all until after. Uh, maybe, hopefully, not a tangent for you, but World War II and uh, Sears probably mm-hmm. was more responsible than anybody, um, and, and, and in sort of a good way, not a, not a terrible way. When the when the GIs came back from World War II, they needed houses and washing machines and sewing machines, right? And that's when Levittown out on Long right. Island was built, and and Sears kind of promoted this, hey, you've come back now, we know you don't have a lot of money, but let's help you build the American dream that you went over and fought for. Mm-hmm. So, in the, that was done on credit. Sure. Even then, sure. it was done on credit. Sure, sure. Uh, in, in the second half of your book, you turn to some policies that might yeah. increase uh, the American savings rate. And, of course, uh you're in Charlottesville, not all that far from Washington, where I am, and so you always right. have to take into account political realities. Sure. Given those important and uh, inescapable realities, which of the uh, policies hold out the most hope for adoption? Well, I would say there's two. Here, here's what I would. Um, so, the probably people listening to the podcast would not be aware of all the things in the book that I talk about in terms of policy. I talk about a, a consumption tax right. relative to income tax. I don't give that much hope anytime soon. I talk about partial privatization of Social Security for low-income workers. I don't think that's going to happen, no matter whether McCain or Obama wins the presidency. I do think there are two areas that probably um, there is a good chance. One is one of the big holes in the system for uh, savings are people that work for small companies. Um, if you work for a big company, you have access to 401k plan, that sort of thing, and, and that's a big store of wealth for a lot of people. But if you work for kind of crazy Pete's lawn care service right. or something, uh, you just you just don't have access to that. 
And um, there are really from both sides of the aisle um, some proposals floating around for what amount to these small business IRA plans where if you're a small business owner, you'd kind of have to set this up for mm-hmm. your employees. Um, and then we could use some provisions from the Pension Protection Act, which was passed a couple of years ago, to set people up in auto-enrollment. So they could right. always opt out right. of uh, these small business IRAs. But unless they didn't opt out, they would kind of be automatically enrolled in these plans. And I, I mean... I think that has momentum. Obama has a, a specific proposal out for that. I think uh, McCain's at this point is more vague, but um, good indications he supports that kind of thing as well. So high prob- higher probability on that. And, and I have personal hope for uh, some of the proposals in the, um, in the chapter that um, change mutual fund disclosure, which may seem like a real wonkish thing, but people being aware of, fees their mutual fund charges and even some of the tax implications i'd say particularly on the fee side i think people don't understand that very well Mm -hmm. and they end up paying a lot more money than they think they do over time with those fees particularly if it's in a retirement plan and if people were made more aware of that by some disclosure regulation then i think you'd see higher price competition in that marketplace uh, and the invisible hand would kind of move prices down a bit in a way that would, would benefit a lot of people. And I know there's some things happening on the Hill uh, with regards to that, so I, I have some hope about that as well. Okay. You mentioned the uh, the candidates. Of course, this is an election yeah. year, and typically spending issues get a lot more attention than savings. Right. Uh, uh, in other words, uh, you know, you're more likely to hear candidates talk about out-of-control government spending uh, then you're likely to hear, right. what can we do to foster increased personal savings? You yeah. have uh, written uh, somewhat critically of the candidate's lack of attention to the savings right. crisis. So can you, and you've already done a little bit of this, compare the candidates on the issues that impact savings and uh, particularly tax policy. How about yeah. Obama's uh, so-called donut plan for taxing yeah. Social Security income? Uh, donut plan hits me the wrong way, i got to tell you. Uh, more for philosophical reasons uh, than... Uh, donut plan and it is is what he really plans on doing is um, uncapping social security taxes for people making over um, two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. So the donut hole, he would keep the cap up at around a hundred thousand dollars, and mm-hmm. then uh, he wouldn't tax income between a hundred and two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and then he would reinstate that uh, for uh, people making over two hundred fifty thousand dollars. The reason it it, it I don't like it. I think it really lays bare uh, an attempt to turn Social Security into a wealth transfer plan instead of a retirement savings plan. And I think once you do that, I think, I mean, Social Security has always been a bit controversial. You're going to lose political support over time for, um, a, you know, a, a strong government-run savings program. So I, I think that's something that in the short term will generate some money for the Social Security pro- program, but in the long run will make it look a whole lot like a welfare program, and that will make it vulnerable uh, to, to some dismantling. And I think we still do need Social Security, so I think that's a big, a big risk there. Um, Obama has a plan for a, kind of a cash match program for low-income uh, workers where the government kicks in some money if mm-hmm. you save. I think overall that's a good idea. Um, there's been some research that suggests that really works, mm-hmm. these government match programs. The, my objection to it is the current proposed cap is 
$75,000, um, I don't want to fund cash match programs for people making 70 grand. I just, uh, I think it's going to be too expensive mm-hmm. and, and not necessary. On the McCain side, McCain to this point has been uh, more vague uh, about what he would do. Um, I expect some proposals to come out of his campaign uh, within about a month, but he doesn't have a lot specifically laying on the table. One thing I do worry about with, with, with John McCain is that the nonpartisan groups that have looked at the budget proposals um, by both Obama and McCain kind of consistently find that McCain's would cost more money and put us into a larger deficit, which is kind of a, really a role reversal of the way we normally traditionally think about Democrats right. and Republicans. Um, and if the government does go in a lot of uh, more debt, that will have negative consequences uh, for, for personal savings in the U.S. I mean, right. that, that's just, it's implicitly taxing yeah, um, our, our future earnings and our future savings. Right. Uh, some of the uh, issues that we talked about right at the outset. Right. Yeah. Right. We have, again, run out of time on a topic we could uh, spend a semester on, but I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Ronald Wilcox, for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Sam. Again, the book is Whatever Happened to Thrift? Right. Why Americans Don't Save and What to Do About It? Right. And so until next time for ABI Podcasts, this is Sam Giordano saying good day.